So I think communities can repeat this study pretty easily by just doing driving around and doing this mapping and seeing what is being installed in our area. This is episode 318 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. The Federal Connect America Fund has provided millions of dollars to some of the nation's largest telecommunications companies, including several that have developed projects in rural Minnesota. But are those dollars being spent wisely? In a recent report, Bill Coleman of Community Technology Advisors headed up a Blandin Foundation project to go to the field, document infrastructure funded with Connect America Fund dollars, and determine how and if those projects are improving broadband access in rural Minnesota. In this episode of the podcast, Bill visits with Christopher about the report and their findings. The report is available at the Blandin Foundation website, blandinfoundation.org, and we also have it highlighted in our resources section on muninetworks.org. The title of the report is Impact of CAF-2 Funded Networks, Lessons from Two Rural Minnesota Exchanges Left Underserved. Now here's Christopher and Bill Coleman from Community Technology Advisors. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, sitting across from Bill Coleman, who's a first-time guest, but the second time we're sitting across from each other. Welcome back to the show, Bill. Hey, thanks, Chris. Uh, Bill is is incredibly patient. Uh, For the first time in 317 shows, we lost an episode. I recorded it, um, and I think the USB connection was faulty. We ended up with uh, unusable audio. And so Bill came back in because this is such an incredibly exciting report and interesting um, to make sure that we, we discussed it and got it out there. So thanks for coming back. You're welcome. Bill, you are with Community Technology Advisors. Uh, Remind me uh, what Community Technology Advisors does. Well, I'm a sole proprietor, and I work with communities on helping communities get better internet service in rural areas primarily, but then also how to make better use of technology once people have broadband networks. So I work on both the uh, network deployment side and uh, trying to create a more sophisticated rural technology environment. You do both of the things that Michael Curry and I argue about from the infrastructure and utilization. It's fun to work with communities to see them at the beginning thinking about the infrastructure and helping them move forward. But it's an equally big lift to start making use of the technology. Right. It's like um, climbing a really uh, intimidating peak to find out that there's more peaks behind it. That's exactly right. That's kind of a Lewis and Clark, kind of the first time they get up in the Montana mountains and saw nothing but mountains in front of them. The great thing about the adoption side is that communities are really empowered to start doing those kind of things, even with inferior networks, and they can start to make progress, make use of the bandwidth and services they have, and and begin to contemplate what they can do once they have a great network. And I think you're you're known for doing a fair amount of work with the Blandin Foundation as well. But you are your own person, your own company. You work with folks mainly in Minnesota, but um, but also you're open to working with folks elsewhere, right? Sure. And uh, Blandin Foundation is really a Minnesota treasure in terms of uh, supporting rural leadership, rural economic vitality, and they've been working on rural broadband issues for about 15 years now. Right. I fully agree, and I, I always recommend that to other folks. 
I always recommend to, to play people from other places that they have a sense of what the Blandon Foundation does because uh, they've done a lot of very valuable things. But just the feasibility study matching money really provides a, an impetus for communities to get started down this path that you've already talked a little bit about. Right. And we work with them extensively to get them ready for that uh, feasibility study. We see a lot of different feasibility studies that are kind of delivered to a community and they kind of end up sitting more on a shelf. Mm -hmm. But when a community is really ready to interact with their consultant, ask good questions, that feasibility study is really uh, about making decisions along the way that can really help lead to implementation. And we're going to talk about a report here that you did, but uh, was published by the Blandon Foundation. Right. Uh, the foundation supported this work. I've been working with the economic development group in East Central Minnesota called GPS 4593. It's five counties just north of the Twin Cities, south of Duluth. It's an area with great uh, economic potential. I thought you were going to say great cinnamon rolls. <laughs> Toby's. <laughs> Toby's does have good cinnamon rolls. They have great bakeries in almost every town in, in East Central Minnesota, but not much broadband, especially when you get outside the uh, communities. Mm -hmm. And this is a region that has a lot of people who live in the exurban area, little farms and little lakes and uh, uh, very great uh, rural lifestyle with easy commuting into the Twin Cities. Good bike paths. I'll, I'll plug those because I've actually biked up to Toby's uh, one time uh, a few years ago. And uh, um, it's there's nothing better than a Toby's uh, role after that. And there was very protected bike trails a lot of the way. Oh, great. They've got the other infrastructure they need for successful rural lifestyles, but broadband, especially in the rural, you know, sections of the counties, are is uh, is weak, and they see that the uh, their nice lifestyle is one of their best attractors for mm -hmm. economic development, and a lot of people who want to live there and work out of their homes, bring their businesses with them. Uh, in Chisago County, they did a survey and. I think it was 30 some or more percent of people who are living in the rural areas have home businesses. And so uh, rural broadband is critical for them. And so they wanted me to uh, look at what was being built under the CAF2 networks. They had heard that this was coming and they saw that so much of their area was CAF2 eligible. They really wanted to know, is this going to solve our problem? Right. Can we uh, move on to other topics, rural economic development, or do they need to continue to think about uh, rural broadband? And CAF is the Connect America Fund, which is a continuation of universal service historically focused, uh, in the case of Connect America, on broadband. And uh, CAF 2 refers to a specific program in which um, the money is mostly going to the big carriers that are incumbents in these areas. Uh, but there will also be an auction that I'm sure you and I will, will find a reason to talk a little bit more about that will auction off a, a fraction of, of the money that's being spent to uh, places in which the big carriers haven't accepted the money. Yeah. And so this uh, fund is really uh, uh, designed to help motivate the larger carriers in Minnesota, primarily CenturyLink and Frontier, to invest in their rural broadband networks. And uh, in Minnesota, that this is a large sum of money that's coming to the providers uh, and about $50 million just to CenturyLink alone on an annual basis. 
And then one of the other things that I think this report gets at is that a number of legislators uh, for the state, and in fact, in most states, but but in particular in Minnesota, we know that legislators, uh, I would say, are confused. They don't know that they're confused, but they they also have, I think, a mistaken belief that this program is significantly solving a problem in greater Minnesota. Well, everyone likes to have problems solved on their behalf. And so as legislators consider consider where to put uh, dollars into roads or schools or any number of things, if they don't have to fund rural broadband, you know, that's good news to them. Right. Right. So it's very convenient for them to listen to the CenturyLink and frontier lobbyists uh, claiming that there's no problem because the federal government is solving it. And I've sat in uh, multiple meetings where the providers have described what they're going to uh, deliver under that. And it Sounds pretty good. Mm-hmm. and uh, But then I thought, well, let's see what's really being built in these rural areas and bring some more factual information uh, to the communities. And even when the providers show their plans, you know, it looks kind of impressive. But when you start to think about the distances involved in rural areas and the uh, capabilities of the DSL services that they're deploying, you, know, you quickly see the limitations. Right, and that's exactly what we're going to talk about. But we haven't given people the title of your report yet. Do you want to you want to share it so that I can I can once again tease you about it? Sure. It's the uh, impact of CAF two funded networks. Lessons from two rural Minnesota exchanges left underserved. So. I, I continue to believe since last week when we recorded this originally, <laughs> I continue to believe that this has one of the more anodyne titles and, and is one of the greatest differences between a, a title that doesn't get at how interesting and new this research is in terms of showing something that's that's unknown. Uh, it's quite a revolutionary approach you've taken relative to what others have done, and the, the title may not reveal all of that. I think we tried to uh, minimize our inflammatory language. Uh, the foundation is very interested in presenting real factual, balanced information, and uh, uh, not necessarily going in with an axe to grind, but really, you know, helping community leaders truly understand what this will bring for them. Well, and yeah, I think making the point about an axe to grind, you did something that's very responsible at the beginning of the paper, in which you discuss. Um, factors of uncertainty in terms of um, factors that may um, result in in the um, the actual coverage that you're talking about being more in favor of the incumbent providers or less in favor of the incumbent providers. I think that you came down with a very fair methodology. I think you gave every benefit of the doubt, um, but you were very honest about limitations of your research. My name's on it, and so I want it to be seen as fair. I know that uh, providers can be pretty aggressive in uh, trying to point out issues. And so I really wanted to give them the benefit of the doubt and uh, uh, show the picture as fairly as I could. So one of the things I wanted to do is just get a couple of key facts out of the way so we don't waste time on them and we can just move on to the the interesting stuff. Um, But it is, as you said, um, most of the money that's coming into Minnesota is going to CenturyLink because they have the most territory um, that um, is involved. Um, And if you look at a map of Minnesota of who doesn't have broadband, I think you'll find that, as is true of most of the Midwest, it's where the big providers operate. Um, but there's $85 million per year coming in over uh, six years, I believe now. It was originally going to be five, but it's six years. 
most of that money is going to Frontier and CenturyLink. And, and again, CenturyLink's getting the bulk of that. Uh, they have to deliver 10 megabits down and one megabit up um, by the end of the period. I believe by the end of this year, they have to have 60% of the area Correct. covered. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that this impacts 170,000 households across Minnesota. So that gives you a sense of the scale of the, of the project. One of the issues with CAF2 as compared to a, a community doing, doing broadband planning is that CAF2 is funding a certain number of households in Minnesota, but not all unserved households in Minnesota. Places that are either too expensive to serve uh, are excluded, as are communities that have uh, four down and one up already. Mm-hmm. And so even though the state or the state goal for broadband and the FCC standard for broadband is 25 down and three up, places that have four are left out of this program. And so their their future is quite uncertain uh, in terms of how they are going to get better broadband. Right. So let's just jump into into what what you're studying and how you ended up doing it. And so the first thing I think is to get a sense of um, what exactly this paper shows, and then we'll talk about how you determined that. So okay. what did you find in the course of this research of what's the impact of the CAF two funding on uh, these two exchanges? Well, I guess <laughs> on the you, you studied two exchanges, and you can talk about that. But what did you find in these two exchanges? You know, we we found that there's a vast area that is still uh, someplace served between 10 megabits and 25 megabits after the improvements. And as we think about an FCC standard of 25 down and three up and the uh, state goal of 25, three and and, uh, and then 100 down and 20 up by 2026, that these rural areas still need to keep their eyes on improving broadband services. What's being delivered to them is really inadequate today, and as we move into the future, uh, will certainly be inadequate. When we see the gigabit availability uh, in towns through cable companies especially, or in even com- areas that are in rural areas that are served by uh, rural telephone cooperatives or uh, public sector networks, mm-hmm. you know they have fiber to the home. Right. You could plausibly get gigabit from three different people at some houses in Minneapolis because CenturyLink had to their credit has been more aggressive in urban areas than I ever expected them to be in recent years. So, um, you know, you can imagine how frustrating it is that the federal government is giving a lot of money to providers in your town so that you can have an obsolete connection when you know other people are choosing between super fast connectivity, probably at a similar price point to what you're paying. And I think the one of the big issues with the CAF two dollars is that uh, rural telephone cooperatives and electric cooperatives have been thinking about expanding into some of these areas on a competitive basis with brand new fiber networks, mm-hmm. and now they see uh, this CAF two dollars being deployed, and imp- you know so competition is enhanced. It's not great, but I think they got the feeling too that this competition would be too much for them to really overcome right uh, with a new network this is and this is where i get really 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 angry because that money should have gone to the co-ops to provide very good service and instead co-ops are have faced with this choice of 
Are we going to try and build and offer a very high quality product with no subsidies? And we're going to be competing against companies that have gotten massive subsidies from the federal government and have all kinds of other advantages already. Uh, it's, a, it's a hard choice to make. I think those co-ops are going to do it eventually in many cases, but it is frustrating that that's the way, that's a decision that they have to make right now. You know, the uh, CAF program is providing about $3,000 per house, uh, which in rural areas, you can deploy fiber to the home someplace between five to $10,000 per house, maybe even higher in some very difficult areas. But that $3,000 is a big chunk. And so it would be would have been very interesting to see where we would have ended up had uh, the FCC applied this reverse auction approach for all the CAF2 money instead of just those areas where that was declined by the larger providers. We've heard from CenturyLink that in the areas where they've done CAF2 that, um, that most households aren't just getting the minimum of 10 megabits that they're required to do that, in fact, and they have some percentage. To me, that seems implausibly high. I, I'm often frustrated at statistics when there's no means of anyone fact-checking those because we don't have any good source of data as to where these households supposedly are. But to get back to your paper, um, you know, you show the maps of of these overlapping circles of where you could plausibly be getting more than 10 megabits based on where they've laid out their physical infrastructure. So let's talk about that a little bit. Okay. Um, so, so how did you get a sense of what technology would be available without getting a job at CenturyLink? DSL service has uh, uh, been around a long time and well-established uh, distance tables that show uh, how the speed of DSL slows over distance. And so what I did was he uh, went out and uh, did a drive around and found where CenturyLink and Frontier had uh, installed fiber cabling in the right-of-way and then uh, installed DSL access modules or DSLAMs. Uh, and so we have uh, did that and then we drew circles around those uh, DSLAMs, uh, 3,000 foot radius and uh, 9,000 foot radius. And within that 3,000 foot circle, uh, you can maybe you can get that 25 down and three up. And uh, within the 9,000 foot circle, then you're essentially at the 10 down and one up. And when we drew these circles, we knew that uh, uh, copper cabling does not go as the crow flies. It goes as the uh, down the road and follow around the lake and maybe circle back. And so uh, we think that the 3,000 feet and the 9,000 feet is really generous yes. in terms of the uh, uh, distance. Well, especially because I think those, and again, this is very real world scenario, but you're not just dealing with length, you're also dealing with quality of the copper. And so we can assume that in many of these areas, you're not dealing with pristine copper and that one of the other things that degrades the signal over distance is the quality of the copper. Yeah, and some of this copper might be 30, 40, 50 years old. The original line when these people got uh, telephone service in these areas. And if, when you talk to the residents and you ask them if their phone uh, buzzes and cracks when it uh, rains, uh, many people says it. Uh, they say it does. And that is an example that uh, there's breaks in the uh, insulation on those uh, uh, copper lines. I wanted to prompt you on something, which is that if others wanted to recreate this, 
they might think, oh, well, wouldn't it be easier just to go get the permits that are pulled by these companies to operate in the right-of-way? And, and you tried to do that. I did. I requested, there's four different counties involved in uh, this research in terms of the geography. And so I made requests of uh, those county right-of-way permit uh, folks for the information. And what I got back was kind of haphazard. And when I looked at, we mapped that out and it was uh, clearly underrepresented what I knew was out in the field. And so I'm not sure if they didn't understand my request. Maybe townships were uh, issuing those permits. Mm -hmm. Maybe there weren't permits issued at all. Um, and so we said, well, we're just going to go out there and uh, do the drive around. So I drove around and uh, took pictures with my GPS-enabled iPhone and uh, got the precise locations of the, the equipment. And you then ran it by Frontier and CenturyLink um, because you did one exchange of each and made sure that you weren't missing any. They didn't offer any corrections to what you were doing. No, they didn't. And um, uh, they were not really excited about what we were doing and uh, saw that as attack on the CAF2 program and on them. But again, we're just trying to figure out what is really being built. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a, a critical piece. Also, there's a lot of different boxes in the, in the right-of-way. And so I uh, spent some time with a group of uh, technologists, uh, product managers and engineers and so on, saying, well, what is this box and what is that box? And uh, uh, wherever we saw a box that we really couldn't identify, we counted that as a D-slam, just again, to make sure that we were overstating rather than understating the coverage. And so this actually is a reminder for me that we should have told people where they can find this report. The more enterprising listeners may have already just gone off and searched for it, but your maps uh, really help to spell this out. Uh, where, where should people look to find it? It's on the Blandon Foundation website, so broadband.blandonfoundation.org. And I also recommend if you just Google Bill Coleman, um, you know, um, CAF, um, study, Blandon, uh, that's going to find find it pretty quick as yes, well. Yes, yes. And, you know, it's interesting, and especially in the Frontier Exchange we looked at, which is in Lindstrom, Minnesota, the deployment, when you see the map, looks pretty good. Mm -hmm. You would say, this looks great, and because most of the area is covered by these 9,000-foot circles. Right, the blue circles. The I blue mean. circles, yeah. <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, if you think about that, oh, that's, you know, everyone's going to have at least 10 megabit service, which is great, you know, for people who don't have anything now, or rely on satellite or very expensive cellular. Yeah, I was just talking to a woman who lives in East Texas who does not have uh, broadband in her home, in her county, or in her library. There's nowhere close by to go at all. It gives you a sense for um, um, you know, what some people deal with. And and I and I, I'm sure anyone who's listening to this knows this already. But I was just reminded of this earlier in the week. I think uh, Angela Seifer from National Digital Inclusion Alliance and I were talking about this. There are people in the United States who don't understand that there are a lot of people that don't have broadband. Like there's people who just assume that everyone has it, which is <laughs> it's amazing to me. So your point is well taken that for people who go from zero to 10 megabits, um, that is a significant jump in quality of life and, and opportunity. It is. And CenturyLink uh, uh, has talked about that they uh, that 70 percent of the CAF2 affected customers can get 20 megabits or more. 
Okay. And that's one of those stats that I just, I would really like to be able to uh, <laughs> verify myself. Yeah. And I think what I've seen is that many of the people who are benefiting from CAF2 are only somewhat rural. Sure. You know, they're right on the edge of the, you know, before the town had one D-slam in the downtown area. And so if they're two miles from downtown, you know, they don't really have very good broadband. Mm -hmm. And so this program has probably improved their broadband as well as what we consider to be extremely rural. Okay. And so back to my circles, uh, we were able then to prepare maps where we took away the 9,000-foot circles and show only the 3,000-foot circles. People that have what we would call broadband. Right, the 25 down and 3 up. People who could plausibly get broadband. It's, it's one of those things where not everyone inside the circle can get broadband because of the as the crow flies problem you mentioned earlier. But we know that people outside the circle really don't get it. Yeah. And, and that picture looks extremely different. You know, we back to our geography, you know, there's uh, nine of these red circles can fit into one blue circle. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the pi r squared comes into play there. And you can see there that the uh, eight-ninths of the geography is outside that 3,000-foot circle. Well, and this, and this gets us to, again, one of those rants that I'll resist going on. <laughs> but um, this gets us to a point in which I think CenturyLink might be mad at you, but I think a lot of their public affairs people are really annoyed at their CFO because you mentioned this at the beginning of the paper. They've been honest. They've been upfront um, over the course of 2018, much in the way that I believe Verizon has been historically, that they just don't see a, a reason to invest in rural America in the near future. Their company depends on focusing on enterprise customers in urban areas where they can be competitive, where they can get a much better return on investment. And so, you know, when you look at these smaller circles, the cost of of getting broadband to people who don't live in those circles, it's it's almost going to be a whole new investment because there's nothing that we're going to really do to get CenturyLink to use their infrastructure or I would argue Frontier who hasn't made these claims, but we also know is out of money. Um, you know, there's this is a wasted investment in some ways. I mean, so you make a good point that it's not wasted for the people that can at least get 10-1 for 25-3. But when we think about people who we want to be productive members of society in the economy and in, in the education, um, it's this money is is effectively wasted for the longer term goals of Minnesota and others. You know, they're, they are deploying a lot of fiber. So if somebody else would come in and, and uh, purchase that and make use of that fiber, mm-hmm. maybe, you know, that is an asset. Right. If CenturyLink wanted to decide that, that they're, they could change their business model and try to, like, not focus on last mile and really just enable others to invest in there, then, boy, I would be cheering CenturyLink and singing them praises. <laughs> yeah. And in the 1990s, early 2000s, this fiber to the node technology is really what a lot of our rural telephone co-ops were deploying uh, as for DSL. Mm-hmm. And uh, from that, then they've extended and uh, gone to fiber to the home. So it is possible. Where you have the will. And the finances. And, mm-hmm. and maybe there'll be a CAF 6 where uh, <laughs> these companies will receive additional dollars to do that. Uh, I would just be so angry if we throw still more money at, at companies. I just You and I have talked before about how well the Dakotas have done because – um, whether it's the small family companies or the co-ops, which are more numerous, the telephone co-ops, they have an incentive to serve customers well. Whereas these big companies that are headquartered more than a thousand miles away, uh, it's just too easy for them to forget about the rural areas. Um, but actually, so 
this just reminded me of something too, which is actually, you know, South Dakota and North Dakota just exploded in terms of the connectivity uh, in, in statistics from like UCLA and that sort of thing. And what you were just saying just reminded me, I think what happened was they had built these networks, in many cases, even fiber networks, and they weren't really offering higher capacity connections. And when they turned them on, all of a sudden, suddenly South Dakota goes from being 30th in the nation to two, according to PC Magazine for speed of a state. So just as one of those remarkable things, I know you pay attention to these sorts of things. So we do. And, you know, I work with a lot of the companies that are trying to expand into rural and the uh, challenging business case that represents. And the co-ops, even with our state broadband grant program, are looking at five, six, 10 year, you know, return on investment. Mm -hmm. And when you think about the publicly traded companies, they just cannot, you know, do that. It's not in their... Uh, DNA, it's not in their bylaws, and, and the uh, uh, stock exchange will uh, treat them accordingly if they're right. investing money that provides no return. Yeah, it's, like, it's a quick quiz. What do you call it if uh, the CFO of a major telephone company starts talking about how they're going to invest massively in rural Americas? It's an early retirement plan <laughs> because you're going to lose your job. You know, CenturyLink now, their goal is to be the best business technology provider mm-hmm. in the world. Mm-hmm. And so that's a long way, unless they're thinking about home-based businesses and rural, a long way from rural deployment. Right. So uh, is there anything else that we need to cover in terms of the circles? Because I, I feel like people have gotten a, a decent sense of of what they're looking at, which is that this is an area uh, in which um, you know, people are going from often nothing to something, which is, again, I, going from zero to 10 is a bigger jump from 10 to 100. Um, but we need people to get from 10 to 100 over some period of time in the near future. We do. And I think that the real message is the job's not done in these communities. If they're going to try and attract people uh, to come and do home-based businesses or medical professionals uh, to uh, come to their community and enjoy that rural lifestyle, the 10 megabit connection is not going to be one that supports teleradiology or just as important for many uh, people who are moving to rural areas, is what is my spouse going to do? How are they going to earn their living? And so if you think about multiple people needing bandwidth, uh, 10 megs is, is not going to be it. It reminds me of a story that I heard. I'll bet you've heard a lot of stories like this because you you collect these stories as well. But it was of a person, the primary breadwinner for the home, got a job in an area that was a bit rural. And in sort of talking about it as a family, the, the kids and the spouse basically said, okay, this seems like a great opportunity for you, for us as a family, but we're going to live 45 minutes away because that's the closest place we can get good broadband. And so that person, you know, you can imagine moving. A lot of people don't, when they move, they're not trying to pick a place to give themselves a 90 minute daily commute, but they did that because they were not going to live in that particular region because there was no decent internet access there. It certainly has moved up into the, you know, community uh, site selection criteria for large businesses, small businesses, and residents now. I've uh, seen the statistic that 70% of, of people won't buy a house without uh, broadband. And I can only believe that that number will go up oh, yeah. as uh, telemedicine really becomes a reality. And just as people my age now, you know, in, in the 60s, to be able to live wherever they want, that's an important factor for everyone I, I know in my generation. Yeah, absolutely. 
shouldn't some some like government agency, regulatory agency, perhaps a communications commission somewhere be doing this kind of work to do basic sanity checking on what is the impact of our investment? What um, you know are some of the claims that these companies are making about services uh, correct, given the amount of frustration from um, broadband subscribers about what is represented on maps in terms of their home coverage? You know, I think that brings you know to mind the famous Reagan quote of trust but verify. <laughs> yes. And uh, so I think communities can uh, do repeat this study pretty easily uh, by just doing driving around and doing this mapping and seeing you know what are what is being installed in our area. Uh, your electric co-op could be of some help in this because they have to uh, go and install electric meters mm -hmm. because all these devices are powered at the site. So I think that's a way to kind of see what is being built. And if you're trying to convince your electric co-op to become a broadband provider, you know, essentially they can see this pretty easily and really measure out uh, what kind of service is going to be available. And once they see that, maybe they won't be so hesitant to try and compete. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Uh, I assume that if people have questions about how to do some of this and want to follow up with you, you'd be available. Sure, that would be great. Thank you, Bill. I, I'm I'm very excited about this. I, I think being able to actually look at this and not just talking generically about numbers of people or in radiuses, but actually seeing it on the maps is a is a really good addition to the conversation. It's a new tool that I hope people go out and, and use to to demonstrate to their neighbors, to their elected officials, the real uh, scope of the challenge we have even after this CAF program ends. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it and hope people make great use of this methodology in their own communities to drive better broadband deployment. Great. Thank you. Thanks. That was Christopher and Bill Coleman of Community Technology Advisors discussing his recent report for the Blandon Foundation, Impact of CAV2 Funded Networks, Lessons from Two Rural Minnesota Exchanges Left Underserved. Be sure to download it at blandonfoundation.org or from the resources section of muninetworks.org. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other ILSR podcasts, Building Local Power and the Local Energy Rules podcast. You can access them wherever you get your podcasts. Never miss out on our original research. Subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. Thanks to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle License to Creative Commons. And thanks for listening to episode 318 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast.